It's quite the prayer. Take my life and let it be. Stacia, thanks for leading us this morning. Thanks for bathing us in scripture as well as song. It was powerful. So the team I was leading was bursting at the seams with excitement. This group of junior and senior high kids had just finished this week-long work project on a reservation church, and now they were about to embark on an epic journey into the Wyoming wilderness. They had all they needed in the packs on their back. The vans were parked, their boots were laced, they had helped each other get those heavy backpacks onto their backs, and they were about to brave the backcountry. You know, it didn't take more than 10 minutes to get to the uh, river that we had to cross. I don't know if we'd call it a river. It was more like a fast-moving creek. Uh, it could have been 15 feet across at its widest. But still, it was moving, and it was water. And I knew, because I had scouted it out the day before, that at points it was up to waist deep. Middle of spring, actually late spring, so the winter runoff was in full force, so it was moving quickly, and it was cold, and there was no way around it. To get to our first campsite, we had to cross the river. Now, after a quick prayer from the youth pastor, we started to cross. And I would love to tell you that God had mercy on us, and he blocked the water further upstream, and we got to walk across on dry ground, but that didn't happen. We all got in about waist deep with our boots on because the, the, the floor of the creek was not conducive to bare feet. We trudged across. Every single one of us made it. Every single one of us was cold and wet. Now that stream crossing affected the rest of the trip. Okay? Many, a, many a time during the trip, we would look back and we'd reflect on it. We'd laugh and we'd talk about ways that it had taken its toll on us. We'd go and check to see if our boots were dry yet after two or three days, and, and we'd wonder what other rivers, literal or figurative, are we going to have to cross in this trip or our life? That river crossing affected that team. Now this morning we're in Joshua chapter 3, 4, and the first half of chapter 5. Grab your Bible and turn to Joshua 3, if you will. Hopefully you've had a chance to read it this past week. If you haven't, in brief... It's the account of how the Israelites got from one side of the Jordan River to the other side. But I want to tell you this. This is not a story about a river crossing. This is not a story about a river crossing. I'll tell you why in just a little bit. Let's pray. God, we recognize this morning as yours. We have made promises in song, in word, in Indeed, in giving, uh, and God, now we want to listen to what you have to say. I pray you would open our ears and our hearts to the words of truth that you want to communicate with us. Allow us to be humble enough to hear them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've missed any of the last two weeks, I want to take just a moment and catch you up to speed. We're in a series in Joshua and Judges that we're calling, They Did What?, we're going to ask this question several times. In week one, we got to see God, Moses, and the Israelites encourage Joshua to be strong and courageous. We saw a slave boy turned sergeant that then many people followed. I will tell you, though, on the Sunday I said that, I had someone come up to me afterwards and say, James, you were wrong. He wasn't a sergeant. He was a general, at least. 
But slave to general didn't sound as good as slave to sergeant, so we're going to stick with that. Okay, so slave to sergeant slash general, and the people followed. God called us to have courage that Sunday, to remember that he's always with us, and he challenged us to be word-centric, to be people of Scripture. Last week, we looked at how Joshua sent a couple of spies across the Jordan River into Jericho and the surrounding areas, and they ended up at the house of a prostitute. We got to look at the ways that God spoke to them through her. She talked about God's might, his majesty, his mercy. And those, those uh, spies were humble enough to listen to her. Now last week we asked the question, are we humble enough to listen to God's voice, even if it comes from places and people that we don't expect? This morning we find the Israelites on the banks of the Jordan River about ready to cross. But again, this is not a story about a river crossing. Let's look at Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left Acacia Grove. Some of your Bibles will say they left Shittim. And they arrived on the banks of the Jordan River, where they camped before crossing. Three days later, the Israelite officers, they went through camp. And they were telling people, let's get ready to go. Right? Now you may be thinking, Pastor James, you're telling me this is not about a river crossing, yet it seems like that's what they're going to do. And especially if you look a little further in chapter 3, you see more talk about the river. Verse 15, it was the harvest season and the Jordan River was overflowing its banks. Not about a river crossing? Huh. Let's talk about the river. Okay, The actual Jordan Valley between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is at its widest between 3 and 14 miles. I think you can see a picture of it up there. It's actually a great picture. Within this valley is the river's flood plain. So when the river floods, this is where it goes out to, and it's anywhere from 200 yards to a mile wide. Uh, the, actual, uh, the actual river, um, what do you call that, river channel, is anywhere from 90 to 100 feet wide with a depth of 3 to 10 to 12 feet. So not exactly um, shallow. Okay? And at that time of year, the water would have really been moving. There was some serious flow uh, right out of the Sea of Galilee. It dropped about nine feet, excuse me, it dropped about 40 feet every mile. And from there on out, it averaged out to about nine feet of drop every mile. So that water's moving. And you look, you can't really tell from here, the floor of that valley is covered in shrubs and bushes. So it wasn't just some nice crossing where it's smooth on the bottom, but you're actually trekking through these, this, this jungle and you got water that's flowing super fast. Can you picture it? And the Israelites camped on the bank of this raging torrential river for three days nonetheless. I can almost taste the, the muddy water. Hey kids, you, you kids that are in here, okay? If you're standing on the edge of a lake, Cody, if you're standing on the edge of a lake or a really, really cold pool, are you going to jump in super fast or are you going to, you know, stick your toe in and then maybe your ankle and, and then maybe up to your knee? What's going to be easier for you, to jump in or to go slow? To go slow, she says. Whew. I know that if I go slow, I won't go. Okay? I need to either go all in or I'm not going to go at all. Okay? So look at the Israelites. They've camped there for three days. 
they got the sound of the raging rapids in their ears. They, they're feeling the musty air from the river. And they're going down and almost losing their family's water bucket because of the, the current that's going so fast. Now, I bet the doubt started to creep in every minute they did not cross. And those minutes turned into three days. So what are they thinking? How are we going to cross this thing? Keep in mind, this is not a story about a river crossing. Back in Joshua 3. 1 through 3. Different translation this time. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. They came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel, they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of the three days, officers went through camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord moving, then you follow. That is what this story is about. When God moves, the people followed. Let's look for a moment at the Ark of the Covenant. What was in it? According to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 9, nothing was in the Ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Mount Sinai, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they left the land of Egypt. Now in context, that story is when Solomon was moving the Ark into the temple that he had just built. This was years and years and years and years after the Israelites crossed the Jordan. According to the author of Hebrews, there was a couple more things in that ark. It says, Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Now, I don't think what exactly was in the ark is as important as what the ark represented, what the ark signified. In the book of Exodus, God gives very specific instructions as to how to build the ark. He talks about the type of wood, the, the lengths of the cuts, the specific things of the lid, which was called the mercy seat. He talks about the gold that was going to cover the entire box. Now, after all the instructions, God said to Moses, Exodus twenty five twenty two, there I will meet with you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant, I will speak with you about all that I give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant. God says, there I will meet with you. And God kept his promise. Numbers chapter 7, verse 89. Whenever Moses went into the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, to speak to the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the Ark's cover, the place of atonement that rests on the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord spoke to him from there. Okay, Are you catching the significance of the Ark of the Covenant? What it signified. The ark was where God chose to communicate to Moses and thus through the people. Okay? The ark was what people began to connect with God's presence. Where the ark was, God was. In fact, it, it came to be understood that when the ark moved, God was moving. Numbers chapter 10, you can just listen to it, 33 through 36. It says, They marched for three days after leaving the mountain of the Lord with the ark of the Lord's covenant moving ahead of them to show where they would stop and rest. As they moved on each day, the cloud of the Lord hovered over them. And whenever the ark set out, Moses would shout, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let them flee before you. 
And when the ark was set down, Moses would say, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. So you're getting the picture. Okay, Joshua 3 and 4 is not about crossing the river. It's about God represented in the Ark of the Covenant moving. And it's about the people following. You can even see this emphasis in the word order of the original Hebrew. In both Joshua 3.3 and 4.11, when it's talking about the people crossing the river, it talks about the Ark of the Covenant being carried by the Levitical priests. The ark is mentioned first, and then the priests, and then it talks to people, talks about the people coming across. Now, if you question that I'm, I'm kind of stretching this a, a, a bit, I want you to go home later and count how many times the ark is mentioned in, in, in Joshua 3 and 4. You'll find that it's mentioned 17 times. 17 times. Is there any question as to what those chapters are about? There shouldn't be. Right from the beginning, the ark goes first, then the priest, then the people. And the people they had to follow from a distance. Chapter 3, verse 4. Since you have never traveled this way before, they will guide you. Stay about 2,000 cubits uh, behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the ark. Make sure you don't come any closer. 2,000 cubics is what the original Hebrew says. The New Living Translation says it's about half a mile. That's a long ways. So why so far? Now, many people think it's because of the holiness of God. And since the ark represented God, they came together. So don't get too close, right? Remember when God was meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai? He told him over and over, don't let the people come near the mountain because they're going to die if they do. It's about the holiness of God. Now we see this regarding the Ark of the Covenant also. In 1 Samuel 6, verse 19, it says, But the Lord killed 70 men from Beth Shemesh because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. And the people mourned greatly because of what the Lord had done. Seventy men. How many of you knew that story? How many remembered that? I hadn't. We're probably more familiar with the story of the man named Uzzah, who reached out to steady the ark, right? 2 Samuel 6, 6 and 7. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of his irreverence. Uzzah died there right beside the ark of God. There was a holiness about the ark of God. So was it the holiness that led God to tell Joshua to tell the people, stay back a half a mile? Well, maybe that's part of it. But I also think if you look in the text, you'll see two other very specific reasons. The first is this. The people didn't know where they were going. So God said, stay back. You can follow the ark. You can follow the priests. They will guide you. That's in verse 4. Okay, I also think he had them stay back that far so they could watch and see what God would do. If you're a half mile back and that river stops and it starts standing up like a wall, you're going to see it a lot better than if you were on the heels of the priests and the ark. So I think God wanted them to stay back so that they would know without a doubt this is God moving. This is God leading the way across the river. And this is God who's going to lead you into the promised land. This is pretty clear in verse 6 and then verse 9 and uh, 9 through 11. Joshua in the morning said to the priests, lift up the Ark of the Covenant and lead the people across the river. So they started out and went ahead of the people. 
Jump down to verse 9. So Joshua told the Israelites, come and listen to what the Lord your God says. Today you will know that the living God is among you. He will surely drive out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites ahead of you. Look, the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord of the whole earth, will lead you across the Jordan. So what happened? The people followed. Verse 13 and 14. The priests, they will carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. And as soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream and the river will stand up like a wall. So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan and the priests who were carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. You jump to verse 17. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the ark of the Lord's covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed by. They waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. You see in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4 that it says, after everybody had passed by, then the priests and the ark passed by them again on the way out. So what happened? God moved. And the people followed. God moved and the people followed. They did what? They followed. Now in this narrative, there's also a story within the story about God telling Joshua to have 12 men go and pick up 12 stones that they would take out of the river and, and set up as a memorial. And I love that story. And I love the idea of, of grabbing a stone, you know, something tangible that we can place in our hand to physically remind us of major life events. You know, sometimes I'll give out a stone to somebody who's being baptized as this tangible reminder of what they are doing but more so as a reminder of what God has done. We could probably talk all morning about that pick up a stone and remember idea, but uh, we're not going to do that this morning because what we're looking at this morning is this. It's a simple fact. God moved and the people followed. Talk about a joyous day, right? A day of obedience, a, a day without any doubt that they went where God told them to go. God led them in a specific direction with a specific purpose. And when they went to sleep that night, I bet they thought, yes, God moved. We followed. Oh, it's a good day. Now, in our series on Joshua and Judges, we're going to ask this question. They did what? And many times it's going to be in this flabbergasted, like amazed, astounded way of, of how the Israelites failed miserably. But not today. I mean, today, mark this up for a time. The Israelites, they done good. Okay? Mark this up to a time. You want to go and you want to high five some Hebrew, like Hebrew person wearing Birkenstocks. Good job, guys. God moved. You followed. Well done. Let me tell you something. It must have been nice to have a box to follow. It must have been nice to have a box to follow. That's right. I said it. I heard it said this past summer, and I thought, that is so, so true. Okay? Must have been nice to have a box to follow. God, represented in the Ark of the Covenant, was obviously moving. And I wish that we, at times, had something that obvious. You add to it the fact that there was Joshua who God was speaking into his ear and then giving them instructions. You add to it the guy that there's this priest that are wearing these fancy clothes and they're carrying this gold box and it's, it's evident that God is moving. Talk about it being a whole lot easier to know when and where God is moving than it is today. Somebody say amen. 
Okay, if you don't feel that way, then you don't have to say amen. It must have been nice to have a box to follow. Now listen to this. I don't want to say, and I'm not saying that the Israelites had it easy. Okay? They heard the voice of God, yes. Their parents saw God's mighty miracles and his plagues in Egypt. And a lot of these guys were real young, under the fighting age. So they actually saw the the cloud and pillar that was guiding the Israelites as they wandered through the desert. Okay? I'm not going to call that easy because when they messed up, and they did over and over and over again, they paid the price. And as I thought about this this past week, I thought to myself, if James was there with the Israelites, he would have got swallowed by the earth. He would have been one of the ones that got hit by that plague that was sweeping through the tribe because they had complained about there's no food and there's no water. James would have been one of the ones that ate manna on day two after God had said, only collect enough for day one, and I would have woke up feeling sick. Okay, I'm not saying that the Israelites had it easy. What I'm saying is, man, it must have been nice to have a box to follow. I wish I knew where God was leading in such a visible, evident way. Man, look, the water stopped. It's standing straight up. Let's walk across. Don't you guys wish that? At least sometimes? Why don't we see God moving like that anymore? You know, I got to wonder if maybe it's, he's still doing it. Maybe most of the crazy, miraculous, uh, awe-inspiring things are happening overseas. Maybe here in the West, we have to look a little bit closer. Why? I wonder if we're not prepared to see it. Perhaps we have not prepared ourselves to see it. Up till now, I have intentionally skipped one of the most important verses in this passage. Chapter 3, verse 5. Then Joshua told the people, Purify yourselves, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. Purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders before you. Purify, consecrate, sanctify. Do the outward rites that are meant to further inward openness towards God's acts and towards his movements. Do the outward things which prepare the heart to see God moving. Now, what did that mean for the Israelites? Well, for them, according to Exodus 19, part of this process was washing their clothes and abstaining from intimacy with their spouse. There are verses about the purification process that talk about bodily discharges and and washing your hands and body if blood touched the, the skin. And there's numerous other verses that talk about ways you prepare yourself to watch God move, to be in his presence. I wonder if we don't see God's movement in mighty ways because we haven't taken the time to consecrate ourselves, to prepare ourselves to stand before God as he moves. Listen to what one commentator says about this verse. God's people must be rightly prepared for God's show if they're going to appreciate it, if they're going to be fortified in faith. And although Yahweh may not now cut a path through rivers for his people every month, the principle remains. Do you prepare yourself for the practice of public worship of God? If we're not impressed with the grandeur of a living God in public worship, is it because we have not prepared ourselves to see him as such? 
Could it be that we even fail to detect the Lord's marvelous working in the routine affairs of our lives simply because we have not prepared ourselves to see or even expect that? Maybe the, the, the question of wouldn't it, nice, wouldn't it be nice to have a box to follow was the wrong question. Maybe the question should be, have I done all I can to prepare myself to see God moving? Joshua didn't say, okay, when you see the ark moving, when you see the waters part, then get ready. He said, get ready, because tomorrow God's going to move. How do we practically do this? I mean, in a way that doesn't become legalistic list of do's and don'ts. Could it mean starting a ritual of preparation on Saturday night? Maybe. Could it mean, you know, being in awe of God's sunrise on a Sunday morning, spending some time in prayer or meditation? What does this mean for us? Maybe turning off electronics, going to bed early, spending some some time in meditation. If you knew that God was going to show up and move in a mighty way this morning, would your last night have looked different? Would your last week have looked different? How do we prepare ourselves to see God moving? As is always the case, I think our text gives us three good ways, good examples to prepare ourselves to see God's movement. Now, these aren't the only ways, but these are examples found in our text. The first is this. Pick up a stone. Pick up a stone. This comes from that story within the story, chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Now choose 12 men, one from each tribe. Tell them, take 12 stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up at the place where you will camp tonight. Pick up a stone. You know, maybe it's not a literal stone, but something that will remind you of God's movement. I came back to the faith when I was an 18-year-old freshman in college, and, and I was so moved by that, so moved by the fact that God's love for me wouldn't change, that, that I went out and I spent way more money than I needed to on this simple gold cross and a gold chain that wouldn't fade. And every day I saw that, and I was reminded that God's, uh, God's, God's feelings for me, God's love for me, the way God pursued me would not fade. And for years I was reminded of that. Until I had kids that started pulling on that chain. And there was only so many times the jeweler could solder it. Okay? You get the point, though. Grab a rock. Pick up a stone. Chris, Brianna, I've got some stones here for you, okay? Three of them. they got a little cross on them. I want to give these to you guys. On the back of them, it says Kylin. It says today's date. Okay? I want you guys to have these. I want you to put one in Kylan's diaper bag, and I want you to keep the other two in your pocket or your purse. And I want to check, keep it with you all the time. Okay? Because this will help you remember what God did today. Not just what you chose to do, but what God did and how you followed. So pick up that stone and remember. Okay? That is first practical step. Second practical step in our, uh, in our text is talk about God's movement. Talk about it. For the Israelites, God told them, hey, talk to your kids about this. Joshua chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 says this. It says, we will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? 
Then you can tell them, they remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. You jump down to verse 21, same chapter. Then Joshua said to the Israelites, in the future your kids will ask, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them, this is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes, and they kept it dry until you were all across, just as he did at the Red Sea when he dried it up until we had all crossed over. He did this so that all the nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful, and so that you might fear the Lord your God forever." Talk about what the Lord has done, how He moved. Talk about it with your kids, with the next generations to come, okay? Psalm 78 is a great chapter in the Bible that talks also of this. Go, go home and read that later. When you talk about what the Lord has done over and over and over, you will begin to look for God's movement. Let me show you what I mean, okay? Seahawks are going to play today, yes? They, oh, I'm sorry, they got a bye week. Okay, so everybody else is going to watch the Broncos play today. Whatever team you're going to watch. You're going to watch them, okay? And then tomorrow at work, you're going to be talking to your coworker at the water cooler about the plays of the game and how, man, it was just so awesome. And, and let me tell you, when you go back to your desk, what are you going to be thinking about? Work? No. You're going to be thinking about the game. If you're a parent and you've got a kid and you're trying to plan their birthday party, you're asking for people for hints on Facebook, okay? You're talking to your neighbors. What, what should I do? I think my kid wants to have a superhero birthday party, so where can we get ideas? And as you're driving along, you're going to notice that Superman's up on the billboard. And you're going to pay close attention when, when the Avengers commercial comes on. When you are thinking about something, when you're talking about something, you're more aware of where that thing is. Yes? So when you are talking about God's movement on a regular basis, you're going to be more aware of how God is moving. Here's a question I want to teach you, okay? Where have you seen God's movement lately? Simple question. Where have you seen God moving lately? I'd love for you guys to start making it a practice to ask people that. It's going to seem a little bit awkward. It's going to seem a little bit forced at first. But if you know someone's going to come and ask you, where did you see God move? You're going to be looking. Yes? Okay. Talk about God's movement. Pick up a stone. Those are the first two. Joshua says, prepare yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. The third example he gives us from the text is found in the first 12 verses of chapter 5. I'm not going to read those, but I will tell you this. It's about sacred ceremony. Sacred ceremony. Kids, if you're filling out your bulletin, that's one of the answers. Okay? These are ceremonies that God had told the Israelites, the forefathers, to do. Okay? Uh, circumcision, Passover. They hadn't been doing that while they wandered in the desert. But they crossed the Jordan River. They follow God. And the first thing they do the next day? Chapter 5, verse 12. Joshua, Joshua circumcises everybody who hasn't had it yet. And they celebrate the Passover meal. We as a church have a very practical way we, we celebrate a sacred ceremony. It's called communion. And in just a moment, we're going to take it together. I think this demonstrates God's movement in a very real way. God chose to wrap himself in flesh in Jesus Christ and come to earth. He moved as he's hanging on the cross. Even before that, as he's wandering around telling people, hey, follow me, he's inviting them to follow him. God moved. He's saying, follow 
him. In just a moment, we'll, we'll take communion. But I want to take a little bit of time to prepare our hearts. I want to have a little time where the uh, couple on the worship team will, will come up and they're going to play instrumentally. And I want to remind you as they can go ahead and come on up that our text today is not about a river crossing. It's about God moving. It's about the people following. And it's about what they did to prepare themselves to follow God. My question to us is this. Are there things we can do to more regularly respond and be prepared to witness God's movement? I want us to think about that question. Just as we take a few minutes in quiet, what can we do to prepare ourselves to witness God's movement?